Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 231, and I'm very, very happy to have in the cave this week two of my most regular guests, two of my favorite people to have on the show because we could just talk geek for hours and hours, and we might do that tonight. It's Mr. Sam Noir and Kevin Boyd. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me this week together. This is going to be fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no, I, I, I've been really looking forward to this all, all week. I think it's been a couple of years since Kevin and I have both been on the show. Uh, can I give my quick plugs and then we'll move on to the topics at hand? We, we, we shouldn't start without you getting your quick plugs. You got to do it. There we go. We'll get that out of the way. My, my shameless, shameless uh, Stan Leeing. Uh, <laughs> I have a Kickstarter starting up soon. It's called Fandemic, F-A-N-D-E-M-I-C. You can look that up on Kickstarter. And that is essentially our pop culture parody webcomic. We make fun of all the things, including Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and superheroes, uh, Sailor Moon, etc. So uh, check that out. And uh, Bally Skillet, we just got our, our uh, augmented reality animated fantasy series back from the printer as proof copies, and it is a gorgeous package. I cannot wait for folks to uh, have, a, have a look at this. Uh, uh, Andrew, Andrew, uh, artist Andrew Dorland has uh, really knocked it out of the park. So very excited to get that into folks' hands, particularly our Kickstarter backers. So uh, yeah, let's get on with the show. Excellent. So I gotta, I gotta ask you: Are you aware that there's a convention called Fandemic? Really? Where is it? Mm-hmm. It's so. There was a guy that used to be associated with Wizard World for many years. Ah. And just before the pandemic shut everything down, he announced that they were launching the Fandemic tour, <laughs> and know. it was supposed to start in Houston, and it got postponed uh, to 2020, and then pushed to next to this year. So who knows if they're going to have it or not. But So this is a uh, brand new show that coincidentally was called Fandemic. Well, it was announced a couple of years ago, but yeah. But they hadn't launched yet. Yeah, it got canceled because of coronavirus. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, but yeah, basically it's um, uh, some of the people associated with, um, formerly associated with Wizard World. Gotcha. Gotcha, and it just happens to sort of, uh, wow. <laughs> That's you know, I, Go ahead, Kev, sorry. Now, my big news today was that we announced that we're expanding the Fan Expo lineup. Yes. And we're launching a show in Denver, Colorado. Oh. Wow, so we are taking cool. over the Denver Pop Culture Comic Con, or Culture Con, um, they they announced back in December that they weren't going to be able to continue. So I had suggested to um, uh, the head of Fan Expo that, hey, if they're not going to continue, maybe you want to talk to these guys. So uh, he did, and uh, they worked out a deal. And their, their company is actually called Pop Culture Classroom, so they actually do a lot of educational programming. So they're going to work with us to expand our educational programming across the Fan Expo brand. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so it'll be fun. 
Yeah, yeah. We'll see. So how how close is that to Mile High Comics? Mm-hmm. Well, Mile High Comics is in Denver, Colorado. So, yeah, so because uh, that's on my bucket list. Maybe uh, this is worth uh, uh, going to check out. Just to I, I may list. make a, t- a trip out there if I go out there and see what's going on, and, and maybe see if uh, I can get uh, uh, Bob to show up and, and check out uh, the show. I I would be totally into that if you are if you're going to fly down there to check out Mile, Mile High Comics. That sounds like a fun. I know his daughter for oh. years and years. Yes, she used to do a lot of conventions and come up and hang out. She was a bit of a party person, hmm. <laughs> um, but she used to come to Toronto pretty regularly and and hang out. Gotcha. Yeah, that's exciting. Kev, out of all of the different Fan Expo locations outside of the Fan Expo Canada, which is the uh, your favorite show as far as just the comic book community and culture there? If you could recommend which another place to go to. yeah. Um, as far as being the most like here, I would, I would recommend Boston. Okay. Because Boston is such a great cosmopolitan city i mean it's right on the ocean so you obviously get uh, a lot of great uh, restaurants and culture along the way uh orlando is a great show and a lot of fun and there's a lot of theme parks around there but it's hot as hell right right it's right. very very humid so i am not a humidity guy so uh well just I, before oh sorry go ahead no it's okay Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, it was a shame. Uh, Eric, I don't think Eric knows this, but we had been talking. You were definitely going. And then our mutual friend uh, Dave was going to celebrate a milestone birthday. So we yes. were talking about going down and uh, hanging out with you and hitting the theme parks uh, just before the, the pandemic. Like, I was really looking forward to uh, going yes, to check out yes. Star Wars Land. Uh, uh, and, and George Perez was uh, scheduled yes. for his final appearance and that yeah. that that was me sort of uh because uh, i i don't get to go to a lot of conventions for fun and uh for for me that was kind of uh, part of the disappointment of not being able to uh uh go anywhere uh once the lockdown hit like that was so part of the plan so what i'd say to that is that 2022 is looking a lot brighter these days as far as things go for shows yep and uh, and uh, George uh, basically has told us that he will do the show next year if it's safe to do it. So he is on board for um, a spring 2022 return to Orlando Ooh. for his final show. Wonderful. When yeah. when is so, when is the uh, Orlando Fan Expo? So uh, I don't know the 2022 dates yet. Yeah, just generally, but, like you said, it's in is summertime. It was supposed to be in March uh, this year. I think last year was in April. Oh, okay. Right. So um, we're trying to get it into a month where it's cold up north. Yes. So you'd want to go down to Florida where it's nice and, and not super humid yet. Yeah. And uh, I found even May, I would be like... I'd wake up and it would be like, oh, you got to walk outside to get into the con. I'm like, oh, please, God, no. <laughs> I don't want to walk outside. It's so humid outside. Can't I find a tunnel or something that'll get me underground? And, <laughs> or is there a car I can hop into that'll drop me off inside or whatever? Because <laughs> um, it's it's just so, uh, because I have asthma and stuff like that, my yeah. allergies, yeah. it's like, uh, it's literally like swimming yeah. for me. It's like going out into a swimming pool. 
there's there's so much moisture in the air. So anyway, I, I mean, it's cool. And we Very have cool. one more show on the on the announcement schedule, which I can't say, but I can tease that I'm super excited about where it's going to be. And it's in one of my favorite cities in the United States. So next month, maybe next one we're talking, I'll have some news on that. But Very cool. Very, yeah. well that's exciting i'm i'm uh all the talk about yeah yeah, yeah. It, all the talk about shows you know looking good for the in, in 2022 and you know people willing to come back who have you know made their last appearance that's a lot of fun sam if you're looking for a partner to go to orlando with i'll go with you let's do it let's I've, do it i've wanted to go to uh, a con in the united states i've gone to mocha fest but that's you know kind of like yeah, yeah. here, right so i would love to do a show a road trip show uh sometime in my life because i've never done it yet so let's do it are you a roller coaster guy i love them yeah all right let's uh, hit universal while we're at it yeah i'm all down for that for sure gentlemen uh, you both helped me really be excited every week more and more for WandaVision than I already was because your theories and speculation and just the, the chit-chat that we would have would be so exciting for the possibilities. Now the, the, the season is over, the uh, you know, finale came and went. How did they stick the landing in your opinion? Well, uh, first off, I'd love to apologize <laughs> for getting excited <laughs> oh can you hear me i can yeah, hear yeah. you yeah yeah <laughs> we can hear you we can hear you Kev. okay yeah yeah you slowed right down so yeah i mean uh this was a great show in that it, it spurred a lot of talk yeah a lot of theorizing <laughs> and uh and uh and it really failed to deliver <laughs> on a lot of that um so no, it was still a good show, still a good show, and but um, there were a lot of things about it which I thought um, were kind of flat in the long run. Mm. Do you think? That, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sam. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the Ebert to your Siskel today. Uh, normally we're we're a little more simpatico on things, but uh, for me, I think the fact that it was less than uh, what people expected and sort of a tighter, more personal story actually worked out better for the show than uh, some of the wild theories. And again, I was totally on board with a lot of the theories, particularly yours, Kevin, about uh, about the Kree being involved with with uh, and then the supreme intelligence maybe being the her. Like I was I was all in for that. But, you know, just sort of uh, rewatching it, it, it just struck me as uh, a wonderful oh, yeah. emotional arc for the Scarlet Witch and and uh, setting it, I, I get some of the problems, issues you have with it, but I think this is the great thing about uh, the MCU, the serialized nature of this. Uh, it has, it has it, it's not necessarily a self-contained, it is self-contained, but it's not in that this story will continue, obviously, so... Uh, uh, yeah, I I felt very satisfied. Well, well I mean, I, it doesn't bother me the. Now you slow mm. down, Kev. I mean, it doesn't doesn't bother me that uh, my theories were wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that's the case of theories is that sometimes you're way off, and yeah. Marvel reuses hexagons and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I but think I my problem, and, and I was a great personal story. It's just the way the Scarlet, the, the um, Scarlet Witch, shall we say, is part of it, right? 
No, my issue is that, uh, are we in what? We're allowed to talk spoilers now, Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Spoilers. Yeah. Spoiler warning. Yeah. Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, uh, my issue is that, uh, there's no repercussion. Like Wanda essentially tortured thousands of people. And in the end, she was like, nah, they don't like me very much. Well, yeah, I wonder why. Um, and and I thought that um, Monica, who I expected, I expected like some reaction to her transformation, and there really was none. It's like she becomes a superhero, and it's like okay, she's like not not a big deal. I forgive you, Wanda. It's all good. I honestly you don't thought, know what you went through. Yeah, I honestly thought when she was walking up to Monica that she would hold out her hands and get handcuffed. Was my thought. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. that to be to be honest, but then I my thinking is that the repercussions will continue and will will feel them throughout the Marvel universe and uh, uh, into Doctor Strange is my thought. You know, in terms of the whole uh, mutant paranoia, I think this is part and parcel of setting that up. Yeah. What mutants? <laughs> yeah. The, mut- the mutants that are coming. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll tell you the thing that burned me the most was Fiatro. Yeah. <laughs> that, still- that to me was a complete troll of the audience. Yeah. I think it's still a double bluff. I think maybe in the multiverse of madness, we might still get uh, uh, Peter Maximoff. Uh, I, think, uh, I think you're wishful thinking. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I think it's... Uh, I think they they were jerking our chains around. Mm. Did you see the Kevin Smith interview with the director? I did, yeah. Oh, okay, because he did sort of suggest that uh, mutants were on its on their way, and and sure, uh, but they they won't be the X Men. They won't be the X Men mutants. They'll be new people. Mm-hmm. The but mutants are, are definitely coming, but but you don't think they might set up some shall we say, cameos in the same way? It oh. looks like, or do you think Spider-Man 3 is trolling us as well? I don't know what's going on with Spider-Man 3. That's the problem. Well, we've got the Alfred Molina casting and the uh, Jamie Foxx casting confirmed. Yeah. Has any other casting been confirmed? Uh, reportedly, the Andrew Garfield and all that other stuff is happening, mm-hmm. but uh, we've seen no footage of it. Uh, and, and there's talk that it may be, be broken into two films, but that doesn't really lead into uh, Doctor Strange, uh, which apparently is how that ties in. I, I don't know. At this point, I think my lesson with the with uh, the Marvel stuff is that uh, don't try to expect anything. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. I'm I'm right in the middle of both of you guys. I, I agree completely with Kevin, and I agree completely with Sam, which I know is kind of lame because nobody likes. You know, somebody who's, oh, I pick a side. But, <laughs> but, but I think you guys are both right where there's a lot of things that, that were built up and you know that this is the, the next kind of chapter in the whole phases of the Marvel Universe post uh, Infinity War and Endgame, right? So you're thinking X-Men's got to come because we're not stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fox is on Disney+. Plus. We know this is all there. And you cast this guy. So you're, you're leading us down this road. It's, you know seven hours worth of television it's two movies basically if not more that you've built all these things up where 
you get to that finale and it's like so you did nothing with monica she barely really made, like it could have been anybody it didn't have to be her it was just convenient sort of thing and the same for thing them with, to spin off into into secret invasion or captain marvel 2 whatever they're setting up right and you maybe didn't even have to use her here necessarily or even just the the who became you know the villain who did get arrested it just felt i don't know it, it didn't it didn't live up to the expectations or maybe our imagination and theories but i think you're right sam that the fact that it became a smaller more personal story the way the reason why that story of wanda and vision works when you read something like uh you know the miniseries or their relationship in the avengers it's because it's so personal to them it's such a unique story to her and Vision and, and, you know, the Avengers, uh, Simon, right? Wonder Man. It's a very Mm -hmm. intricate story there. So it almost like, yeah, that's what it should have been. Like, this is the way it should be more feel like when you're reading Tom King's Vision. It's like a very personal story. So I think Mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't live up to what we wanted it to be while okay, you did, you, you're telling us what the story's going to be. And you're right, Kevin. I think Marvel is saying, we're telling you what the story's going to be. Don't think that you can predict it in this case. And you're sometimes more, I think, pleasantly surprised. Like, I didn't know Luke was going to show up, spoilers, at the end of mm-hmm. Mandalorian. I was enjoying the show mm-hmm. just fine. But when I saw it, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe he's there. <laughs> They've already done enough for yeah. me, right? Well, what, what I liked about the Luke cameo was that uh, they set it up in such a way, and I even said it in social media like six months before. I said they have to they have to bring in Luke. There's no way that they can tie this up. He's the only Jedi. Yeah, it really fits. And and yeah. Ahsoka, even even if it was going to be Ahsoka, it really didn't make sense with where that character was headed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I but I think most of us just write it off and say, oh, there's no way they would do that. I mean, how could they mm-hmm. do that anyway? I mean, Mark Hamill's is an old man and. Well, I mean, an older man, and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, Luke is at a different place in his life. So, and the fact I will that they give the uncanny valley, Luke, too, like yeah. he was a little uncanny valley, but they did it the perfect way in terms of uh, him hooded up until the reveal. Yeah. Yep. Now, and the pro- I, oh, uh, anyways, I was going to say, yeah. uh, uh, for me, it, it's. It made a lot of sense uh, during that Kevin Smith uh, interview that they were constantly writing and rewriting up till the the last minute. Uh, that made a lot of sense because there were, as, as Kevin has, has pointed out, uh, uh, there was a lot of dropped subplots, right? Like the the yes. fact that uh, uh, the the witness, the, yep, the person not mentioned again, yep. yeah, just just not. So there was something set up, and then they even talked about the drop scene, which was a little Scooby Doo in terms of the uh, rabbit, Mister Mister Scratchy. Right, and there's two versions of that story. So Shackman says that they filmed a sequence with Monica and Ralph and the kids in the basement, and uh, and the rabbit becomes uh, morphs into a demon, mm-hmm. and they fight it off. But um, so Shackman says that they dropped it because they felt it was too much. For the finale, it distracted. While I've also heard that the the effects sequences weren't done, and they just ah. decided to drop it then that they weren't that happy with it, um, and then try to force a rushed uh, uh, effects job. But the biggest problem I think is that they did it after the pandemic, so Cat Dennings was not available, so they had to 
it's clear they CGI'd her into that truck for her two-second appearance. Mm. And, uh, and they couldn't get... I, I, I'm fairly certain that Doctor Strange was supposed to appear and uh, Benedict was off doing something else so they couldn't get him to come in. So... Now, do you guys think the, uh, the rabbit demon could have possibly been Mephisto? I was waiting, so I was waiting for Mephisto to, to show up. Like I, that was my conclusion, and not because it was a you know a, a far stretch. It's just kind of Marvel as as uh, unexpected, and it's like oh my goodness, they turned the this thing and they made Civil War like they made this happen, and Spider Man showing up. I didn't expect that. They they do mm-hmm. deliver on. Well, yeah, Thanos is the bad guy. Like, we're getting to Thanos. That's established. So I felt yep. that Mephisto was kind of like, this is an established thing. This is Agatha Harkness. This is the kids are there. We're, we're getting to this point. We, it's important for that to be introduced. So to not have it happen, maybe it'll happen in uh, um, uh, Doctor Strange. But I was yeah. like, huh, they didn't do that. Okay. Well, I think they, so I think the big problem, right, is you've got a Marvel hero who's essentially a villain in this in this series. And um, so there's the hope that there's a darker hand at play. And and yeah. when you're talking about magic and, and evil, uh, I mean, the, the only really two possibilities would be Mephisto or Nightmare. And, uh, and they did kind of troll us with Nightmare because they'd used the term a lot in the, in a few episodes and mm. especially the eighth episode, um, when the, they're showing the Dick Van Dyke, uh, episode and you hear nightmare quite a bit. And, and, and the, the devil people, as well, they, they drop mention of the devil a lot. Right. And so, demon spawn mm. when referring to the kids and all of that. Um, so uh, they, it could have been either one of those. And, and I'd heard actually that the demon, the rabbit was, in fact, uh, nightmare. Was the was the end? But they oh okay. Uh, but they again they dropped that. They didn't do it. So, but now I mean, Wanda is clearly a villain in of sorts, and um, the Dark Scarlet Witch saga. And we're setting her up for uh, for being the the problem that Doctor Strange has to uh, deal with in Multiverse of Madness. So. Do you guys think, and I, and and this is a tangent going, blending comics with the show, and again theorizing, because I'm for the first time reading the West Coast Avengers or Avengers West Coast, whichever title it goes by, of the uh, the Vision it Quest. Switch names. Uh, yeah, uh, midway through. It started as as West Coast, and then I think uh, racking wise. Yeah. Uh, it since Byrne was writing both titles, uh, it made sense to rack them together. I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, I'm reading it for the first time. It's I think I find it ages well. It's a really good story in regards Absolutely. to how it holds mm-hmm. up with modern plots and comic book stories. I would be interested in this now. Um, and of course, burnt art at the time is still top notch. But I'm reading it, and um, I forgot my point now. Got too busy complimenting <laughs> Burn. Uh, Wanda's always kind of been that sort of a villain or a, 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 a hero so could she be this is now i remember my point because she started as brother one of the brotherhood of evil mutants right exactly mm-hmm. so could she be the magneto character now that mutants will be introduced like will she take that role kind of, of like she's too powerful but she's sometimes with us and or she could be a real problem for us might they use her in that capacity now 
I'd like to see that actually, given the way they've set it up. You know, I'd hate for her to to. You know, because because as Kevin pointed out, this she has been made a villain and just sort of flew off. Right. Um, so I I would like this sort of exploring her, and and this is it looks like this is what they're doing. She's sort of exploring her her dark side. Right. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely uh, comes across as schizophrenic in a sense in the final episode. Once you're, she's a sympathetic character. Uh, you know, expressing her love for Vision and and. Uh, and all that, and the next thing she's like, "Yeah, I'm I'm gonna read the book of evil and and have my glowing red eyes and peer into the multiverse and, <laughs> and, and all that stuff." It's in and break the multiverse. Yeah. So, but I I do think that when the mutants and they're actually talking about using the the name the mutants instead of X Men. Interesting. To launch it, yeah. So I, mean, I don't know if you, yeah, I don't know if you know the history of that. Is that so? I know that one of the producers of the Marvel series isn't crazy about the name X-Men. And she said as such because she feels X-Men is too male dominated. Right. (laughs) So, uh, but Stan wanted to call the X-Men, the mutants. That was the title he had for it. And Kirby said, no, let's call it X-Men. And they went with Mm X-Men. So I think, um, there's talk of using the mutants as the title for the film that will introduce them. Interesting. But I think it has to follow Eternals. And I, I hate to think I'm theorizing again, mm-hmm. but, but the Eternals, if telling the history of mankind, would, would hopefully indicate where we're going with uh, Homo Superior. Now, do you feel, because uh, uh, I would love, say, a, a, a cameo by Apocalypse, is given, given the fact that they want to rest that franchise a little bit, uh, do you think we'll see uh, that kind of cameo? Maybe not Apocalypse necessarily, but historical mutants? Well, I mean, uh, Apocalypse is such a big part of a certain element of the history of the Marvel Universe, but they could gloss over that. Mm-hmm. And then just go back to return to it as they feel like it. I mean, heck, we've got Pharaoh Ramatut, right? And uh, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, who was Kang the Conqueror in the past and all that yeah. stuff? Immortus and all that mess. Yeah. Now, and I think that we're going to see a little bit of that in the the Loki series. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. So, do you guys think that? The rebranding and calling it the mutants will also be a um, less confusing place for people to 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 get back into an X Men story, because everyone's like, well, which one? Which X Men's what? Even with the Fox, you know, pseudo universe that they tried to create, it it can be confusing. Like, does Wolverine count or this one? So, do you think it's a good way to make people be like fresh start? I'm, I'm intrigued by the, the Hickman-esque uh, possibilities of this, given uh, what they've done with the mutants in, in the recent uh, Dawn of, you know, House of X, uh, Dawn of X relaunch, in terms yeah. of all the mutants are together. So if it, this is something that introduces the concept, and then they can splinter off into all their, you know, dozens and dozens of of uh, separate X titles, TV shows, and individual movies. Uh, I'm I'm on board. I'm on board. What about you, Kev? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the mutants leaves it open. I mean, everybody knows the X Men. That's a brand that everybody knows, and I yeah. think that mm-hmm. 
as far as the film series goes, there's a little bit of fatigue there, right? So the yeah. X-Men didn't end well. But by introducing it as the mutants, and you could present the X-Men within the world of the mutants. Yeah. Absolutely. But there, yeah. there would also be the Brotherhood. There would also be other things mm -hmm. going on. But you'd see a lot of the same elements. And... Um, and maybe you could make it a mystery, like finding what's out there. You know, who mm -hmm. are the mutants? Uh, uh, Professor X, I'd say it being very similar to um, First Class in the way it would start out, right? But let it be explored in, in that sense. You know, I've always wanted an original X-Men, like a proper original X-Men movie myself with the original five. And I know they're not necessarily, those five aren't necessarily the most commercially viable, but I part of me would like to see that. And this seems to be an opportunity to do that for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there seems to be an intent on the, on the Feige side to not adapt comic stories directly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to take elements from different things and throw them together into a hodgepodge and create something new that's still true to the spirit of the original, but not exactly the same. Yeah, and I think that's what makes their universe work, is that they stick to the spirit and the essence of it as opposed to just trying to capture the moment that isn't earned, which I feel happens more in a DC movie where they're adapting, you know... Uh, Aquaman by Jeff Johns almost the whole omnibus is almost the movie and as good as the comic book is uh, trying to adapt that mm, not so much so to, to right. take that moment I always go back to that moment in the Avengers when they're in um, you know by Grand Central Station and the camera pans all around that's not all the original Avengers but you get the feeling of what it was like to see the original Avengers and that's the point mm -hmm. having that moment earned now, uh, they didn't even, they didn't use the M word in relation to the Scarlet Witch. I think uh, their big thing was using the term the Scarlet Witch the whole time. Yeah. And using the word mutant would be a, a bit of a bridge too far. Where do you think uh, they will officially drop the, the term mutant? Do you think it'll show up before? Uh, in we've speculated the Eternals. How about Rogue's supposed appearance in Captain Marvel 2? Do you think she will be sort of the first instance of a, of a mutant front and center? So the problem is, and we're going to go crazy with every project and saying, is this where we're going to see mutants? Is this where it's going to mm -hmm. drop? So you could look at Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You can say, in one episode, they're going to Madripoor. Magic oh, Horror has, yeah, has uh, well, in the Proven promo, you see them going to a big city. Oh. Uh, that's Magic Horror in the, in the thing. So, uh, and there are mutant characters, associated characters that are going to be in the show. So but They wouldn't drop Wolverine in, in there, for example. I don't know. That's that the problem. That seems to be right? a, a too big of a, a reveal yeah. for a, you'd want Wolverine <laughs> to show up in a major franchise film. I agree, but I do think that um, the history of Captain America ties into Weapon X is Weapon 10. He's not oh, Weapon right. X. He's, he's the 10th version of a super soldier that they attempted. And this is an opportunity for them to finally explore this with uh, Captain America and the Hulk and, uh, yeah, bring in Nuke, you know? Bring yeah, in the uh, Weapons Plus program. Well, I mean, from what I understand, we will be getting... Uh, Isaiah Bradley, who was probably... So if Captain America was Weapon Zero, mm -hmm. then Isaiah Bradley was Weapon One. He was the first attempt to make a super soldier after Captain America. 
and Tuskegee, uh, that sort of Tuskegee-esque territory seems to be a really fertile place to, to set a story, in my opinion. I'm, I'm all oh, yeah. for that. Especially with Patriot uh, obviously eventually going to show up uh, w- with a Young Avengers uh, spinoff. Right. And then a lot of what Phase 4 seems to be doing is setting up Young Avengers. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, you know, uh, uh, Tim Roth's character would have been part of that super soldier serum program. I think the abomination. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. there was an Easter egg where they did identify him as weapon something or other. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, general that. Ross goes to the canister, pulls out the formula and it says weapons program, super soldier serum mm-hmm. and gives it to him and it works. He, he's kind of like captain America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not enough for him, which is why he douses himself with gamma radiation and turns into the abomination. And he's set to appear in um, She-Hulk. Oh, is he? Okay. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I think I think when it comes to that sort of speculation of when they're going to say it, uh, I'm I'm I'd be more uh, willing to to place bets on when they officially announce that. The, you know, the mutants is scheduled for such and such release in 2023 or 2022, then I can start, you know, I, I would start to nitpick and, oh, it'd probably be here or something. Because all of these characters we mentioned, even someone like a rogue, uh, clearly she's a mutant, but she could just be thrown into the Avengers if they don't want to go that route. Like, you can adapt that character enough to say, it's almost like the way Wanda and, and Pietro were originally introduced it was open now right they they could be mutants if we want to later on and i think that marvel likes to have those options to be able to change it at any point where it's like nah, we didn't go that way almost like what you guys are saying with the writing it to the last minute Mm -hmm. and the thing too is that uh while most of us know wanda and pietro as mutants in the uh, marvel universe the fact is that uh with all that stuff that went on with the x-men and stuff like that they actually uh, revised history to make uh, Wanda and Pietro, I guess, are they're not mutants and they're not Magneto's children either. Mm. So they've changed all that. And I assume they would just ignore it. But uh, I, th- I think a lot of what happened in the WandaVision series, as far as the Scarlet Witch goes, the history of the Scarlet Witch, that ties to a lot of what James Robinson was writing in that last Scarlet Witch series where... The Scarlet Witch was a, a term, and not not just a name that she picked for herself. It was a title that was handed down to a certain type of chaos magic user. Did he right. reveal that? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Did he reveal that Magda was uh, uh, the Scarlet Witch and handed that mantle to to her daughter? Is no. So right? what it is is the Maximoffs. The mother had a sister, and the sister ah. was their their mother she was the scarlet witch she was uh django and something maximoff well uh, there's their like their sister-in-law i guess was the real mother and she entrusted the children to him so uh and and i guess they were still born by bova Oh, that's right. Because right. the the retcon, the retcon was uh, they're no longer ma- in the comics. They're no longer Magneto's kids, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, I had forgotten that. That's right. Yeah. So now, I mean, I just have this image of this poor cow woman trying to <laughs> offer 
trying to pawn off these babies on whoever would take them <laughs> and tell them whatever story she could tell to get them out of her hair. Mm-hmm. I just want to go and moo in private. I don't want to deal with these <laughs> twins. Uh, you know, now, like... Now, Kevin and I went back on, on this in, in our own conversations. Do you think uh, they're, they are setting up uh, Cathan with the... With the uh, Darkhold, like we both of us love that uh, burn drawn storyline uh, where they go to Wondergore Mountain to to sort of uh, uh, discover that they were the, the I guess raised by the Maximoffs and got stuck in tiny little puppet bodies and then the Scarlet Witch got uh, possessed by Cathan. I think it could go anywhere because even just with with this one. I think you you guys were both mentioning on your uh, social media. I know you mentioned it, Kev. Where where was the burn credit? And the more the show went on, and I'm reading this this Avengers West Coast, I can see like even when uh, you see the, the the image of of uh, the Vision's body taken apart, like that's straight mm-hmm. from the page, and mm-hmm. everything that well, wa- oh, go, yeah. Go ahead. As soon as they introduced White Vision, the burn credit showed up. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was like they were trying to hold that reveal, which I mean, it was anybody knew. Like, here I am theorizing and stuff like that, but it was kind of obvious they were heading towards the fact that there was going to be a white vision or, mm-hmm. or an alternate version of him. As soon as you saw him t- taken apart on the table, I, mm-hmm. I, I think we had an exchange or some uh, uh, to that regard. Because it didn't make a lot of mis- sense that Wanda would have reassembled. His body, like that's where we're like, well, we're, if if he was thrown apart, how would she have reassembled him? Like she couldn't just magic him back together again. Uh, and then there was talk of maybe she'd taken the body to someone who could do it, and that was why she went to Westview and all that stuff. But no, reality was she just walked away from it, right? And mm-hmm. um, uh, and you know, here I am theorizing again, but I, I'm I'm. <laughs> Pretty confident that that was Wanda Gore Mountain that yeah, we see Wanda I, at at the end. Yeah, I thought I'm, that too. So, do you think they're setting up Cathan, Kev? Uh, that am, to me, am if, I pronouncing if, it right? <laughs> it's it's C H T H O N. So, some people say I, I've always called it Cathan, but some people seem to say it's Shithon or Shithon, something like that. I've heard uh, I one know. person say that the actual they were I don't know if if I'm remembering correct it was on Comic Geek Speak and uh, one of the guys Adam Murdo who's the you know kind of the brain of the group he said that it's just Thon. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but he's you know did a you know a class in in linguistics and all of these things in languages. So I I could be misspeaking, and if I am, I apologize. I don't know for sure, but I've heard that pronunciation too. Just Thon. I always thought it was a riff on Cthulhu. Probably in, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think I think they leave open doors. I think Marvel's smart in the way that they write, where it's like let's let's pick a door. Where do we want to go? We could say that was Wondergore Mountain, and we could go this route, or we can you know go go and do this and and tell the House of M story. I think they've left so many doors open, and that's what frustrates us because we're like, we this would be so cool if you did this. Like, why didn't you do that? Yeah, because if if you're using the Darkhold and you're introducing the Darkhold. The Darkhold has such an important part in the history of vampires, so Blade, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. and werewolves, if you wanted to do a werewolf-by-night type of story, 
um, and other types of monsters and, and, and the history of the DC, uh, not the DC, the Marvel Universe, plus has ties to the high evolutionary and all of that. Do you, I, I mean, I can't see them getting into the high evolutionary in Doctor Strange, but... We're speculating he's the tie to Rocket Raccoon, I think. Yeah, because that was something that um, was hinted, that Rocket Raccoon was, was in fact, uh, you know, created by Herbert uh, Windemer or whatever his name is, the, the, the guy who became the high evolutionary. Uh, and there was talk of Mark Hamill playing him if he was available, which would have, which would have given them a, a Luke Skywalker cameo had, uh, <laughs> had he, had they tied it under water vision, but, uh, I think I Mark know. Hamill is always available. Yeah. Especially for he this is, stuff. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's as much of yeah. a fan as we are. Exactly. Yeah. What do you guys hope it is? Like what? What direction would you like to see? Because every possibility, I would want them to. I'd want to see this, you know, Avengers West Coast story completely fleshed out. Because I feel like this is the, you know, a great way to go now that we've had the White Vision and and his uh, that commentary he has with himself of memory. Right? It's clear yeah. now that that issue with uh, the White Vision in the the comics where he it's him and he has information, but there's no sort of emotion anymore. That memory is. In, in the TV show world, was the the one that Wanda put together. So, I'd love to see it go that route. But what do you te- guys want to see? I texted Kevin uh, right afterwards and said, uh, "I think Vision's going to show up in Armor Wars because he's basically Rogue Stark tech." Yeah, was uh, yeah. my speculation. Possibly, yeah, it it's, makes sense. It's so hard to predict where he'll show up next because. But, you know, there you could say, this is where I don't think he'll show up. Like, I don't think he'll show up in Shang-Chi. I don't <laughs> think he'll show up in, in Eternals. I don't see him showing up in in Thor, uh, Love and Thunder. So, mm-hmm. you know, you start just crossing off where would be a good spot for Vision to show up again. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and he could show up again in Doctor Strange, too. That might be the key to bringing Wanda back to some form of reality. That's true. Uh, but but the problem, right? So is he remembers, right? So he's mm-hmm. got his memories back. Uh, they were there, but they've been blocked off. Uh, but he doesn't have the soul that was in the Mind Stone that gave him humanity or whatever An emotional connection to yeah. those memories. Just like At least, in Burns Run, right? He got the memories back, but he didn't have the emotional connection to them. Right. Although we don't know. I mean, the the jewel flashes yellow for a minute before it goes back to being blue. Maybe. Hex vision gave him something, you know, and, and that's that's again uh, one of my issues with WandaVision is that we have this great emotional moment where she says goodbye to the children, and then vision she and vision have this moment in front of the window, and he's like, I was a disembodied voice with no body, and then I was uh, a robot body, and then I was a memory made real. Who knows where I'm going to be next? Well, you know where he's going to be next. You just fought the next version. <laughs> you know, he's he's flown off yeah. to deal with the fact that he's alive again. And at some point, he and Wanda will have to connect. Right. Uh, and so, and the same thing now, we know the children are calling out to her at the end of the end credit sequence. So mm-hmm. really, Wanda, what did Wanda give up? 
She gave up having them for there for five minutes uh, <laughs> until their next appearance. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a good way of looking at. It. I'd like the extra complication because I'm a big fanboy uh, of uh, the Wonder Man love triangle, and they haven't set that up at all. No. But no. I always kind of loved it in the comic books, especially once Perez. Uh, and Busiek uh, uh, got a hold of it. Like, Byrne set it up, but I feel like no one did it well until uh, they did it in Heroes Reborn or Return. Right. Yeah, Heroes, yeah. Return. Heroes Return. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I agree with that, Sam. And I think Wonder Man 2 is... Uh, the, if, if the regular Avengers that we have gotten used to or like the A-list Avengers are... Some of them are taking, you know, stage left. You won't see Tony Stark, Iron Man, the way you know him to be or whatever. I think Wonder Man is one of those Avengers that is a regular team member throughout the years that would be a perfect fit to have on this, you know, new Avengers team, perhaps. So I'd, I would like to see him be introduced to the team and have, you know, the, the white vision on that team with him. I think that would be interesting. What would you think if the sequel to WandaVision was WonderVision? I would love that actually, especially if he's got a Hollywood type guy. Like, yeah, 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 Kev, yeah. Let us go to Hollywood and pitch this concept. That's exactly. Yeah. Vision is amazing. It's really I, you know, I was talking to some people, and, and they're like, "Oh, uh, WandaVision didn't promise you anything," and I'd be like, "Bullshit! They didn't promise anything. They love the fact that we were throwing these theories out every week. Oh, yeah. They lo- they love the fact that we were all like Jimmy Woo." What's the? It's a mystery, right? So yeah, the we're trying to figure out the, the mystery. marketing too, right? Yep. Make it interactive with the fans, and, and so and you know, here you have Jack Schaffer, who's the right head writer on the show, and in the freaking room where she's interviewing on the wall to her left is a giant picture of Wonder Man. Yeah. On her right on the wall, so you can't say, oh, you know, people are like maybe Wonder Man fits into this somehow. Well, was that a troll that they threw that on the wall to get it people could to be. do that? Or is that maybe? Us all along. I think that's that's a that's part of the problem. I, and again, people are like, "Well, oh, I'm so mad that there are no mutants in Wandavision." Well, I think they teased it to it. I think they got your brain going when you saw Pietro. Yeah, uh, this would be somehow tied in with X Men, and uh, and that and that's what angers me so much about it. And and someone saying, "Well, you know, it's so that we would believe that maybe he was her brother." I think Kevin. I think uh, Sam could be right, though, Kev, that it could be the double bluff because now we're not thinking about it anymore. And yeah. I, I and they was, double bluffed us with Agatha. Like they've been playing the double bluff all along. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and I feel. What was the double bluff with Agatha? Oh, the moment where she's in the car because you, you're sitting there going, "What's up with Agatha?" And then she's like, "Oh wait, she's actually mind controlled along with the rest of the people." Yeah, when she vision confronted her in the car at the edge of town. No, yeah. she was playing him. She wasn't. Oh, like yeah, him. yeah. But but in terms of the audience, you know, it's right. it's like no, this is not what you've been expecting all along. And then it was what we were expecting. Yeah, she was playing him. She wanted him out of the hex. Yeah. So I think in in the similar sense, this might be a double bluff with Pietro in terms of oh, it's not the multiverse. And then we and then uh, suddenly in uh, multiverse of madness. It is Peter Max, you know. Uh, yeah, just, again, and maybe I, maybe like his on the, the table. The person that he is 
in this universe, is it how, how I don't know how, how you say the name Ralph Bonner, Ralph Boner. Boner. They're going Definitely from Boner. Yeah, Ralph uh, Boner, Boner, right? I was thinking to myself, <laughs> is there like a, a puzzle in the in the what his name is that will tell us something that we're not paying attention to? No, no, it's there, a reference. A, a specific because the director was a child actor yeah. who was on Growing Pains, and that's a direct reference to Kurt Cameron's best friend Boner. 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 Right, right. And the other thing that people see, keep talking about is they're like, "Oh, that's you know, that's." His name. I'm like, I think that's. So they were still in the hex when they uncover his room, and mm-hmm. uh, they remove the the spell that makes him think he's Pietro. But he's he's still in the hex, so he's he's whatever Wanda made him out to be. So I think Boner was like usually the neighbor would have a full name. Yeah, and so I think she he was intended to be the neighbor, right? The yeah, for whatever a wacky reason. neighbor. Yeah, and so uh, he he was an unemployed actor who was out of work. Was the the eighties version, the slacker. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. Uh, again, that's that's the whole thing. If if the hex breaks, is he still Ralph Boner? You right. Know? And, uh, I think that he isn't, but I don't think he's Pietro Maximoff though either. Mm-hmm. That would be. Could you imagine the coincidence? Some 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 people are like, oh, he's the witness. Maybe he's the witness, and they put Pietro Maximoff from another universe in the witness protection program in a house in Westview. <laughs> that just happened to be next door to the lot that Vision purchased to build a house on. The only, re- the only way that works is if the, the, the deed is a double bluff. And the deed was not planned. Ah. It was not a Vision thing. It was gotcha. someone planted that there to think that, to get to lead Wanda there to that location so that she would find a Pietro. That's the only way that could work. I, I think I'm, I'm probably just still grasping at straws because, you know, one of my theories could actually still be in play in terms of me thinking Wanda breaks the multiverse, Loki breaks the, um, breaks the uh, 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 time continuum, and uh, this sets off the uh, uh, Kickmans, Avengers and Illuminati with the incursions. That right. was sort of what I was thinking, and then the next like set of event, the next set of Avengers movies would be Hickman sort of Illumina- doing the Illuminati trying to stop the multiversal, what is multiversal it, the, incursions. The denim nerds guy keeps saying we're headed towards secret Avengers, uh, secret wars. Yeah, that's that's it's what I would secret. like, but. Uh, well, we'll see. And this is a good uh, transition, isn't great it? Great segue. I was just about to say, what a great segue. That's very good. Uh, because I, our intent behind the scenes for this episode was to talk WandaVision finale and theories, which theorize away, guys. That's never a problem. That's what we do. It's fun. That's the whole point of this. And we then talk, to talk ourselves into circles. Yeah. And then to talk about uh, the original uh, Secret Wars, Marvel superheroes, Secret Wars from Jim Shooter and Mike Zek, uh, it was, I wanted to talk about it with Sam last week because it was something I had recently read, but he said, let's save it for Kevin. I have Kevin on the show because he really has feelings about that book. So for, for uh, both of you guys, do you remember the first time you read it and what the experience was like for you? I read it as a 37-year-old man. So <laughs> what was it like reading it as when it was coming out, if you did? 
So uh, I do remember when Secret Wars 1 came out and how big of a deal it was. So uh, we had a teaser uh, a few months before Secret Wars with Contest of Champions. Yes, yes. And that, and that was like the prototype for Secret Wars. Uh, and it was an Olympic uh, Treasury Edition that was cancelled because the Olympics were cancelled, uh, at least the U.S. participation uh, in Russia. Right, right. Which is why we ended up with contests. And when, uh, there's a beautiful double-page spread, which would have been, looked fantastic in a treasury-sized edition. Uh, of all the characters looking up, they were all assembled in some dome. But it's the same basic thing. It's like some, some outside force tra- teleports all of the heroes into a certain location. And then from there, the Grandmaster and the... Uh, who's the other one? The game, the game guy, whatever. They have a like a, a bet going on, and they they pick different heroes and pick teams, and and whoever wins the ball, I don't even remember what happens. It's <laughs> <laughs> consequential. But it was one of the elders of the universe, wasn't it? The, yeah, it was two of the elders had a competition going, right? Yeah, it was a very thin premise. Mm-hmm. And that translated, I remember uh, a few years ago, I don't remember what year it was, I'm thinking 2016, when the whole crew of Secret Wars came to Toronto Fan Expo. Am I remembering right, Kev? Yeah, yeah, we had uh, uh, Bob Layton and... Uh, Zach? And Mike Zach and John Beatty and Jim Shooter. Shooter. And I think that was that, that was for Toronto Comic Con, I think. Yeah, it was Toronto Comic Con. You're right. Yeah, that was a well. That was um, uh, something that uh, Tiz, who I worked with at the time, he that was his dream was to <laughs> assemble the Secret Wars team, and and uh, and it led to the number of uh, reunions that they did over the years in different locations. So, um, but yeah, no, it was pretty cool. Did you collect the whole thing, like each issue back then, or did you have inter interspersed ones? Did you get number one off the newsstand, Kev? Yeah. I did. I did, yeah. I'm an old man. So, um, no, I did, and it was a big deal. Um, and the whole thing was that the Mattel, I think, approached Shooter about doing a, a toy line, and they needed a story. And so he mm-hmm. put together this story where the certain characters that they picked, Marvel heroes and Marvel villains thrown onto a, a, a mosaic world, would be great for them to do a toy line. Um, and I do remember reading the book, but I stopped for some reason. I just got bored of it. I, I, really? I remember what a big deal it was. Cause at the time, if you were reading the books, essentially, uh, the characters went into the machine at the end mm-hmm. of one episode and then and the next out. month they were back out, but they were different. Yeah. You know, like, you, this is going back and finding out what happened to them. Yeah. Like Spider-Man had the new costume. She-Hulk was uh, part of the Fantastic Four. Yep. Certain characters were missing, like the Thing, and um, uh, I don't even remember what else was happening. Other people had new costumes. <laughs> other people were in different relationships. Colossus had cheated on Kitty, supposedly. I think was one of the other yep. repercussions. Yeah, that's right. That was a big part of the story. I was totally the mark for this series, I think. I was, you know, I, I think probably the perfect age where where all of, you know, getting all the superheroes at once. Wow. Uh, I 
Yeah, it was a huge deal for for me, and and I I couldn't even find Secret Wars uh, one. I think the first issue I was able to get a hold of was probably in in you know the the newsstands or the grocery store was issue three. But I did uh, manage to snag I think uh, Fantastic Four, where again yeah they ran off to Central Park and then She Hulk popped out. So I was. Super excited about that, and I had already seen. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have the issue at the time, but I had already sort of uh, seen a friend uh, had that issue where Spider-Man showed up in his black costume, and so I had, had yeah. heard about this. So when I finally did uh, get it, and and actually uh, within that year, uh, I I did make it down to the Silver Snail at long last, and I think I paid six dollars. For Secret Wars number one, which was a fortune for me, but I had to have it. And yeah, every every month I I I was invested. I was I was completely invested in this in in a way that I wasn't with Superpowers too, because uh, Superpowers was being published uh, in and around the same time. And to me, you know, this is this is kid brain. Uh, superpowers felt like it didn't count. Almost, it didn't almost feel like uh, it was in continuity. And even as a kid, I, I kind of, whereas Secret Wars was in continuity. You know, it tied in with all the other titles and, and had long lasting. And, and looking back, it actually did kind of have quite a few repercussions in terms of the She-Hulk and, and Spider-Man. And I can't remember, I think, yeah, there was some effect. Oh, uh, Magneto. Mm-hmm. Uh, becoming a good guy, you know, yeah. it, it was the it, it did sort of become the the template for how crossovers should be done and and have uh, ripple effects in terms of the storylines. So I'll tell you a fun story about um, Secret Wars is that uh, I think I stopped around issue five. I wasn't impressed with it, and I stopped, but. Uh, Shortly after, I was I was doing my own comics, and I was in Artist Alley at a at one of the Dragon Lady cons, which was at the Hilton Hotel at Richmond and University. And uh, and I was like, uh, you know, the the power you're out there drawing comics and selling your comics for the first time at a show, and so kids kept coming up to me and saying, "Will you draw me this or will you draw me that?" And so I was drawing sketches for issues of Secret Wars that I was missing. <laughs> and Crisis, because Crisis was the right at the same time. So you say drawing for kids. How old were you, Kev? Oh, um, I don't know. I would have been like 15, 16. Oh, okay. So, yeah, older older hmm. than me, who, who again, was, was the mark for this series. That so I, like, I might have been one of the kids coming up to you and say, draw hmm. this for... Yeah, they'd be like, draw me, um, you know, like Iron Man. And I'd be like, okay, I'll do you an Iron Man sketch, but I need Crisis 6. And then like, <laughs> go around the room... And hit all the dealers and find me a Crisis 6 and go, here's a Crisis 6. And I go, all right, here's your sketch. Here's your Iron Man sketch. Yeah, so, Crisis uh, came out uh, while Secret Wars was going on, too. So that ignited yes. my... Were they in tandem? Uh, Pretty much. In tandem, yeah. Not necessarily in tandem. Uh, I think one came out towards the end of... Or Crisis came out towards the end of Secret Wars, right? Because Superpowers was coming out at the same time, wasn't it? No, no, uh, Crisis and Secret Wars. Secret Wars started first, but it was like 85, 86, and so was Crisis. So, oh, okay. And so, they both were a year long. Mm-hmm. It's just that Crisis was so superior. 
as far as quality and storytelling? I love both. I felt like I got Secret Wars first and then uh, Crisis started. There might have, but I I can't remember what the overlap was, but I I love both of them. Although Secret Wars seemed a tighter story to me, whereas Crisis was so like all over the place in terms of being able to follow like the, the dozens and dozens and hundreds of characters. Right. Uh, you know, maybe it's the the whole thing of being able to follow hundreds of characters versus dozens of characters. But yeah. I, and I think you're right. I mean, I think it's a smaller story. It's more intimate because you're dealing with two dozen characters as opposed to two thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus you were a teenager at the time versus me who was a kid. Uh, you know, probably Secret Wars uh, was easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as a fan. I was a Marvel fan up to that point. And it was at that point I started looking at DC and saying, this crisis stuff is really good. And, and Swamp Thing was really good. Mm-hmm. Were and you then, collecting teen, new Teen Titans at that time? Yeah, most of us were. If you're a Marvel zombie, you recognize the, the, the quality of new Teen Titans because it was George Perez who everybody knew from Avengers. And he was also overlapping Justice League as well, because I remember I would pick up the, the only, uh, you know, soup, uh, DC titles I kind of liked as much as the Marvel titles were uh, Justice League with Perez and uh, Teen Titans. Yeah. Yeah, and then, um, but yeah, Titans was really good. It was like a Marvel title at DC. Yeah. And, I feel like it was a direct uh, direct competition to X Men. It was it was your mm-hmm. high quality of artist, and at that time the same style high quality writer who are very descriptive. They make use of how talented the artist is, and they're they're kind of telling these off the off the beaten path story to really target a specific audience. I think they were doing the exact same thing at those times. And they were also Marvel creators. Like they yeah. were coached from Marvel as well, uh, both Wolfman yeah. and, and exactly. uh, Perez to bring that sort of Marvel style to the to the line. And then it worked out so well. They kept poaching Marvel talent, right? Byrne and Miller and well, that was the, that was the real switchover. Was that Seeker Wars and Crisis both ended, and Crisis followed it up with John Byrne going to Superman, Miller going to Batman, Perez going and starting Wonder Woman. And all these characters launching new titles, and Marvel was pretty much yeah okay it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's back to Romina except when Jr. the Beyonder came back with uh, Disco Suit and Jerry Crow. Oh. Way before well, Disco, even I knew Disco was was <laughs> dead as a kid. Like, right. <laughs> why was he wearing a disco costume? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think that was part of the problem. Was is that. Uh, Marvel started to decline, and then you saw the image guys rise up in the absence. So the Marvel guys went to DC to launch Post Crisis. Mm-hmm. There was a void at Marvel that gave a rise to the Sylvester's, Liefelds, McFarlands, mm-hmm. and then they were gone not too long after that. That's so interesting. I never thought of it that way. That yeah, had, inside had, that ten year period, it was really sort of the the Marvel like promoting their talent, only to have them walk away. Which is why in the nineties they stopped promoting talent and promoted characters over talent. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right, Kev. That that was the pattern. I mean, it's obvious, but you think I I think of even post uh, those superstar 
Burns and Perez's and all those guys going to um, DC and and that other half of the 80s, they're more associated with DC titles in many ways. I never felt that there was a, a diminishing quality in the X-Men now that you didn't have or, or in any of those titles that those people were gone from. They were still they were still good books. There were still a lot of good things happening in Spider-Man, even though Roger Stern had gone to Avengers and then to you know like they maintained at some level, which was kind of interesting to see that new talent rose up and almost in many ways stole the show, changed the business because those well, guys went to DC. It's interesting you mentioned. I think X Men remained the same because Claremont was still yeah. at the helm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Up until he was knocked out by uh, by the image uh, guys, sort of uh, asserting themselves. But Spider Man two fifty two comes along, and Roger Stern is out, and Tom DeFalco is in. Yeah, with Ron Friends. Yeah, and uh, those first few issues are okay, but I quit. I was sick. By the time you get to the photo cover at uh, two sixty two. I'm like this is garbage. I, I'm I'm for the first time in my life I'm sick of Spider-Man, um, and that was the one the only time I'd ever stopped buying Spider-Man was around then. And Were I you still? Back. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I didn't come back until the wedding around two ninety two two ninety three. Oh, okay. So you weren't enjoying uh, when Peter David sort of came aboard as well. No, I didn't. I have no uh, love or recollection to the Peter David years because because Gene DeWolf. You, so you missed out on on Sydney no, and Gene I, did, I did, and I, and I and I hate the art from those issues. I think it's Fair bland enough. and uh, and never drew me in. Uh, so I have no affection for that storyline. Hmm. It's funny because I have, I love the Roger Stern era of Spider Man. It's probably my top two or three eras, but I also have a real good soft spot for DeFalco and Friends. It. I just I have memories of it as a kid and i also just like both of those talents um Mm -hmm. but but i you're right kev i understand that that switch especially that photo cover was always so like but i felt that they (laughs) they they were able to pick up well from where stern left off and they maintained that book as best as they could and i like ron friends as an artist i think he was a very good spider-man artist in my opinion I, I thought it was great. Uh, I just felt that the stories uh, weren't that fantastic. Um, and then I think Friends was gone. It, it was spra- It was choppy. Like after, there's some great Hobgoblin stories around the 260, 261 mark. Is that Jim Owsley? Um, it might have been. Christopher Priest? Well, I'm, I'm thinking 262 was Bob Layton. It was a filler story, and I thought it was like a baby story. Ah, uh, because like Hobgoblin takes... versus no, uh, sorry, Spider-Man versus uh, Wolverine to me was a high point in that era. Yeah, I I went back and got that. That was one of those books that I filled in, and it was okay again. But I don't remember the art in that being very good. Oh, really, Mark? Bright, was it Mark Bright? The... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the Quantum and Woody team. Yeah, but not very good in my opinion. Okay. I've never never been a fan of Mark Bright or, or those bland gym shooter hires that uh, that filled out in the absence of of the the John Burns and so forth leaving. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we jump back to uh, Secret Wars versus Crisis? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. I'm very curious. Uh, how does this stand up 
when you've reread them as adults, because Crisis, uh, again, I will agree with Kevin, like as as an adult, I think, uh, you know, as, as much as sprawling and, and all over the place as, as uh, Crisis gets sometimes, I think uh, Crisis is definitely the, the in superior series in terms of overall quality. Mm-hmm. Um, have and you read- re- just recently read uh, Secret Wars, so I'm, I'm very curious of, of your opinion, Eric. Well, I have read both of those books later. Uh, as adults, on, yeah. As, adults. So very, so, as an adult, I'm curious. When I first, I think if I reread Crisis now, I would pick things out more than I did the first time. The first time I was expecting this, you know, huge Armageddon end of the universe story, which it is. But but it, until I got to the issue where that, I forgot the total team of, of heroes, but when they when Supergirl and Superman go, and I think it's like issue eight around when she dies, mm-hmm. I really felt like, okay. But it took eight issues for me to know that this is what they've got to do. Mm-hmm. And because it was always these snapshots and these moments in this universe and in this universe, and it's showing what everybody's kind of seeing for a long time. There's a meandering narrative there. It, it really meanders. Yeah, with tuning forks and towers, and you got to yeah, things. yeah. And the art is gorgeous. I'm like, oh, these. Well, uh, it's the Where's Waldo factor, right? Like, yeah. yeah. The, the main appeal for me is is Where's Waldo playing playing Where's Waldo with the Perez art. Right, mm-hmm. right. And I and I always, especially when I read it then, which wasn't too long ago, but it was. I'm trying to understand what the problem is here. Whereas in Secret Wars, it's it's similar in that like what the Beyonder, what is this going? It's so, so simple. It's it's such a simple thing, but also so complex and nuanced when you kind of take the characters away from the the, the Where's Waldo of it all. Mm-hmm. And yep. so I found myself always kind of looking at Secret Wars the way Kevin kind of described it, where I knew okay. so much about the story. That mm-hmm. I didn't need to read it. But when I read it, I said, I don't know anything that happens here. I don't know that this the, the X-Men become their own little thing and they're kind of in the middle of – they don't know whose side they're really going to be on. And you, you see uh, these characters out of character. The, they're <laughs> factionizing. Like that, uh, and again, that was uh, probably part of the appeal that they, they wanted to sort yeah. of create factions and put them outside the context and then at the end of the day sell toys as well on, on top of that yeah. yeah and I love the Doctor Doom story I think Doctor Doom's the, the saving grace of, of so many Marvel comics because he's such a great antagonist he is Ooh. absolutely his arc like his villain arc is yeah. the saving grace of Secret Wars like yeah. uh, he's what you know creates that that spine uh, especially that ten cover where he's just like oh. beat up as hell, and and you're actually kind of rooting for him to take out that that the 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 Beyonder, yeah. You know, as odd as it sounds, especially after he, he you know uh, uh, looks like he's going to be defeated. Yeah. And so for me, my biggest issue with Secret Wars, I think the the plot is simple enough to be super fun. I think the the factionizing that goes on makes it very interesting to see whose morality kind of is where. So that's fun to watch. Doctor Doom's a great antagonist, but the dialogue at times is just like, oh, <laughs> it's it's hard to read it. It really is hard because you can see something just so Saturday morning cartoon like to make 
sure that that character said something is almost yeah the shoot the shooter school right uh, every comic had to like they had to demonstrate their powers and say who they are at the mm-hmm. beginning of every issue and you do you have to do this with dozens of characters it's not just the main character or the Fantastic Four you know mm-hmm. it's dozens yeah every single time they show up yeah and so you and then you remind yourself well no this is a toy commercial so mm-hmm. I'm She Hulk mm-hmm. and I do this totally tubular like. She literally <laughs> says that. And I was just like, oh, that's horrible. But I w- wait a second. Yeah. This is so that a kid can buy the toy and they know who's who. Mm-hmm. Right. In, that, in that sense, it's like, okay, I get it. And, and yeah, the, the, the toy line wasn't that, uh, you know, it only lasted a, a couple of years, a few years. So you kind of see all the toys that didn't get made as well. And also, uh, uh, the most compelling characters were outside the toy. I think Shooter really gravitated towards the Molecule Man and uh, yeah, yeah. Marsha. Who's, who's Marsha? What's her her villain name? Uh, the the Flame Girl and, and Titania, the, or is it Titania? The, Titania, the, yeah. Who's a character yeah. who who continued to exist after, right? She's in the Immortal Hulk as as we speak. Yeah, uh, there you go. Uh, but but I felt like these characters that sort of uh, Shooter got to create and actually do something with because he he didn't have control of the rest of the cast so you know he was grasping at straws and actually kind of creating sympathetic characters out of uh what he was given which is uh uh yeah the molecule man his love interest (laughs) no no yeah it's it's true random to me uh in terms of what you sort of found compelling or where he was allowed to or even just some of the oddities of the time Smart Hulk was a novelty to me. Uh, uh, Rhodey as Iron Man was yeah. a, a complete novelty. Uh, the new Captain Marvel, you know. I think it was a great book for people who would have been probably your age. I don't know how, how old you would have been at that time, Sam. Who, but. who would have wanted the toys. Like, But then the superpower, even as a kid, I knew the superpowers toys were better. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though the Superpowers series wasn't as good. So, so it, you know, I was starting to develop taste. So uh, I, I liked having a black, you know, these cool characters that were never, because I was a Mego fan, right? And to have like a Wolverine for the first time or a, a black-suited Spider-Man or a Daredevil, that was, that was pretty awesome. But on the flip side, you know, I had action figures, action features on my superpowers and the sculpts, you know, the sculpts were all, all you know, fully tooled and better. Uh, whereas, you know, superpowers, it was all generic. They yeah. were just same. Like wrestling dolls they, kind of. Yeah, they were the same bucks. I think there yeah. were three different bucks and they were all just had different paint apps. Right, you know, right. Like the fact that I had a Doctor Doom for the first time. But, you know, you could tell it was kind of Iron Man parts. Yeah. (laughs) And I I remember and and this I say this because at that time, I think the the toy like the the extra media related to comics, I think was for me. The reason I liked DC was because my first toys were superpower toys. Mm -hmm. So and and. They were sculpted in a way because they were always ba- they were based off of uh, the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, right? His oh yeah, model. the style guides. Right, so the it looked 80, like early '80s style guide. Yeah, so it looked like if I opened up a you know John Byrne era comic, my toy kind of looked a little more like that 
comic book character than other toys would. So you can mm-hmm. see like this this matches what I'm looking at and and clearly this toy lives in in the universe that exists between the panels. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, uh did uh, you know as a kid, do you remember going to like Toys R Us and having the choice between uh superpowers and secret wars? For me, no, I was I'm at Secret Wars, I wouldn't have seen it. I was by the time I was playing in '87 with action figures, I was three years old. Oh, okay. So gotcha. it's it's early. It's those early memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you would have been like it's like me and the Migos, you know? Right, right. Uh, they were my earliest memory, uh, but then I I was I'm of that age that I can sort of uh, transition to Secret Wars and superpowers. Yeah. Do you guys have a favorite cover of of Secret Wars? Uh, I think ten is it ten that I, I cited as the Doctor Doom beat to hell like yeah. ready to yeah. that that to me is very iconic. Although the you know the Spider Man theoretically should be I I there's something about the actual Spider Man mm. swinging with the black costume that's more iconic than the Secret Wars. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's anything more iconic than the first yeah. issue. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Oh, that, in terms of the group shot. Yeah, I have the T-shirt yeah. of that. Like yeah, I, I'm I, wearing the T-shirt. Of it. Yeah, we we are T-shirt twins. Yeah, I have that as well. <laughs> and um, uh, but I, I don't think it ever gets to that level again. Um, I do certainly the the number eight cover is important because of the black costume, but it's not the greatest cover. Was Zach uh, the right artist for this series, guys? Zach was the best artist for this series. It's the fact that they he couldn't do all twelve issues was the problem. Mm-hmm. And um, and but so did you find I'm, like his run on Captain America and Punisher to be more iconic because uh, in some ways I felt like because he had to draw a hundred characters it it just wasn't as tight as his work on Captain America or Punisher. Um, it certainly was more rushed, I would say, um, than the others. I mean, I'm looking at some of the covers now. Yeah, that Doctor that Doctor Doom cover. Where he's uh, he's basically all damaged and, mm-hmm. and he's he's going after the power of the Beyonder. That's a great cover. Yeah, um, and even the Magneto cover is pretty good. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, that one's uh, pretty iconic. I think mm-hmm. eight is pretty good. I mean, actually, I'm looking at eight and I'm like, okay, I see more Zach there. Um, like some of the other ones, I'm looking at one where like there uh, uh, there's some character on a mountain or something, and all the characters are zooming in. Uh, maybe Galactus. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't look very good. Oh, uh, the Hulk uh, holding up the thing. That was a. That was kind that of. Was a, a, that was a really cool cover. Re- memorable cover for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it stands up though. I haven't seen it recently, but it, it does stick in my mind uh, in the in a way the others don't. Yeah. I think it's one of those. It, it's a perfect cover. Not as a person who's not that smart artistically to describe it in the way you guys would understand it. But if I was a kid, I want to know what happens. I need mm. to read that because mm-hmm. of the the story that the cover is telling. I think it executes it perfectly to want make you want to read the story. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's. I'm looking at it now, and I don't think it's the greatest cover. Um, it's almost like if you were to pan out from the Steranko, the famous Steranko cover. Oh yeah, yeah. Was doing something similar because the maybe rock it's evocative. Maybe it's because it's evocative of that cover. It I think it's also, and I'm not knocking my friend Bob Layton, but 
but I mean, it's a Bob Layton cover. It's not uh, a Mike oh, Zach okay. cover. I no, thanks for pointing that out to me because again, my memories aren't uh, uh, that great. So Zach didn't draw all the covers. No, no, he which, skipped. Which yeah, he did every three? third issue, I think, every three issues, and then there was a fill-in. Oh, okay. So which Late covers did Light do, do? Like, I'm looking at number five, and that's clearly not a Zek cover. Gotcha. That's got to be a Leighton cover. Uh, yeah. And that, I, I don't like that one at all. It's the X-Men versus the Avengers. Mm-hmm. So are the Zek covers the one that are sticking out in, in my mind, then, in terms of the, the Doctor Doom... The Spider-Man, the Magneto, and the first yeah, one. There's a, X, right? I think there's so. a num- number three is is uh, the one where Spider-Man uh, discovers the X-Men are plotting against them, and so it's uh, and it's a, a misunderstanding, little, much like a Three's Company episode. Yeah, it's called the Crisis Within, and you see Spider-Man fighting the X-Men. That, that's a great cover. That's a Zek cover. Um, and then I, what? Whoever. I think Professor X basically makes Spider-Man forget. Yes, that's right. <laughs> what Which a was, dick. Well, exactly. That was the interesting part of it, was he was a dick. Uh, and you're like, well, maybe there's a little bit more at stake here than... Uh, but I, I gotta say, that whole final half of the series, I turned off at that point. Mm-hmm. I, I went back and got it, but uh, like the whole uh, Galact- like uh, Doctor Doom versus the Beyonder and he takes on the powers that was kind of like Galactus. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, the, the weak parts were um, definitely like the Colossus side story. I felt, I felt that they, there was, there was trying to, they were trying to tap into some of the soap operatic aspects that they could, that I didn't feel were interesting at all. They were the parts of the story that kind of like, oh, we're going to hear it I was invested in that Colossus-Kitty relationship, so I, I think that really stood out in my mind. Sure. Like, oh, darn you, Colossus, you heal. Yeah, that part of it, I'm like, come on, dude, what are you doing? But I was also, <laughs> I was also in my head thinking, I just don't think, I don't buy it. I don't feel like that was Colossus. It didn't mm-hmm. seem something he would do where it was definitely a Johnny Storm thing. So it was very out of character, but not in a way that I was like, ooh, that's a plot twist. I'm like, mm, yeah. I don't and buy it. Sure writing other people's characters, too. So I'm sure there was a lot of uh, grumbling going around the office in terms of the office politics <laughs> around Shooter at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You- uh, now, in terms of cover, uh, crisis covers, mm. uh, which ones stick out for you guys? Like, which are your favorite crisis on Infinite Earths uh, covers? Yeah. Oh well, I mean, I don't think you can get away from the fact that Seven is a great cover. Supergirl, uh, the death of Supergirl. Girl one, eight, the Flash cover was iconic. That the Flash was going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the detail on ten and twelve. Uh, and I'm just going to call up the images and look at them while we're talking. I think issue number, one has that incredible number, wraparound. Yeah. yeah. But I, I felt like it wasn't as strong as Secret Wars 1. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it was it was great. It was Perez doing all these characters. Yeah, yeah. But there was sort of an there was a lot of secondary characters on there. Yeah, like, who's Pariah? You know what I mean? I, I remember thinking that, like... When I when I picked up and I did pick up like Crisis on Infinite Earths number one off off the stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm looking at them here. Seven and eight, ten. I love it. it was Crisis the Spectre versus the Monitor at the dawn of time. Oh, that one's that was great. Yeah, and then that twelve cover where it's like uh, all the characters fighting the Monitor, the Anti Monitor. 
or the uh, yeah the Annie monitor and and he's like a giant character in the middle of uh, the city of Metropolis, I guess, and they're all bouncing off of him and stuff like that. I never quite understood the monitor, the anti-monitor redesign halfway through because I actually really liked the original monitor design a lot better than sort of the what they came up with later. And, and I guess his containment suit kind of broke up. Yeah, I guess. but story-wise, it didn't really like make a lot of sense to me. Mm. why they visually sort of changed the... And again, this is probably the little kid in me at the time trying, like to, I, trying to figure it out. Some of these, though, the, the number two cover with Commandy and the, they're all on top of the tower, not a great cover. What uh, about the heads one with the, the Earths? Uh, that, to me, sort of stands out, but again, it's a more of a Where's Waldo novelty. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of cool, but... Uh, the the death of the monitor one was eh, it was okay it was well designed but not a great mm. cover. Uh, the villain cover is fantastic. Uh, one where all of the supervillains yeah. are assembled. Yeah. Uh, I mean that could be a poster. Yeah. Um, the the one with the monitor looking at all the different fractured Earths didn't really work for me. Uh, so a lot of them were hit and miss, right? So yeah. Um, and then 11 is okay, but it's kind of like, 11 is kind of the dead zone between two major events. Mm -hmm. um, seeing what had changed in the earth and uh, before the big final battle. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like a weird anticlimax, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, do you have any preferences, Eric? I'm, looking, I'm going through the list now. I think, uh, of course... The death of Supergirl issue is is so iconic, as well as the Flash one. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's again those Where's Waldo's moments, and I think you're mm -hmm. right, Sam. Looking at that first the first wraparound, you know, issue spectacular Christ Infinite Earth, it's beautiful, um, but I think you it, it doesn't hit it out the park the way the Secret Wars does. Like I. There's many ways I guess people can can subjectively look at what they prefer in art, but it's sometimes the way it makes you feel might mm -hmm. might overpower how good it is on a technical level. And I think the way uh, Secret Wars One, the cover makes you feel, mm -hmm. you want to get on that ride. Yeah. Because I don't think we'd ever seen anything like that before. No. That assembly. No, I can't think oh, of it. In terms of the, the amount of heroes that they crammed in? Yeah, I mean, we'd seen, like, holiday grab bags and things like that before. Yeah, that's where true. Some of the characters would appear together, but to put the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, mm -hmm. X-Men, uh, you know, all together on the same cover, like all of your biggest heroes, the Hulk, uh, Iron Man, Captain America, all that, um, it, it was impressive. Mm-hmm. And then they left a lot of the tertiary Avengers back on Earth, right? Like Vision and Scarlet Witch. Star Fox. <laughs> yeah. I think your camera... Whose camera just... Oh, that's is that yours? That's mine. Oh, okay. Nice yeah. couch. Oh, that's the case. <laughs> You're reading something to do with the Phoenix. Fate of the Phoenix, maybe? It's it's propping up my book right now. Uh, I, I, is that I the epic to... collection? It's the um, hardcover, The Wedding of Cyclops and the Phoenix. Oh, nice. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. Now, in terms of uh, Secret Wars versus uh, Crisis tie-ins, uh, what do you guys think? For the most part, uh, Kevin mentioned the Swamp thing, and I thought that both, 
Swamp Thing was the strongest tie-in on the DC side, but I felt like uh, uh, Marvel did the tie-ins a little better. Uh, would agree? Disagree? I agree. I, I, I mean, I, I have, I love. DC and the fact that crisis happened because of what came after it, but I would have no interest in those crossovers at all because I just don't feel that it's it's that young Sam Noir's uh, same explanation. This it doesn't seem to count the same way that it does in Marvel. Other than the red skies, and I mean, they spent a year. I do remember this. They spent a year building up the Monitor, and but then they didn't really have a, a defining uh, a characteristic of this this Monitor. He was quote unquote testing or manipulating uh, things behind the scenes, and and you know his assistant was out there doing things, and in some cases, I think he was I don't know like I, I can't remember like a secret arms dealer or some some weird stuff like that. Like there was no consistency to that buildup. And then once the crisis started going on, often they, they called them red sky crossovers where the only real uh, crossover was the fact that the skies were red. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the way I look at it is, of course, Marvel did it better by leading right into the series mm-hmm. and then coming back the next month. So you were like, well, what happened? Yeah, yeah. I need to know what happened in between. But DC, on the flip side, was like, Aside from Swamp Thing, which had its own, it was like its own crisis story. Yeah, the American Gothic with the supernatural side. Like, they really, you know, more really staked out his territory and the characters. It was a supernatural crisis that he yeah, was doing. Yeah. Um, while the others were like, were like, exactly, they were Red Sky Crossroads, but none of them mattered because they right after rebooting. Crisis rebooted the whole universe, so nothing mattered. Any Superman tie-ins were irrelevant. Any Justice yeah. League titles were nothing. I mean, the only ones that counted, I think, might have been Batman. But mm-hmm. even then, uh, you know, they redid Batman. So DC did what better in the aftermath of it? Because uh, yes. we did have a complete reboot. Well, this was the whole buy-in thing. Some things rebooted, like the main things eventually rebooted. And then uh, some things slowly rebooted. But then the continuity was sort of weird and soft and... And, uh, uh, yeah, Roy, Roy, Roy Thomas was, uh, within a few years, out of a job, basically. Right, but he was on board with it, uh, with, with was, what happened. He canceled All Star. All Stars was just not All Star Squadron, you know? Yeah. And in, even Infinity Inc. wasn't quite the same, unfortunately. And then whatever he tried in the, like, his, his uh, Shazam series, again, you know, yeah. And, and no. was Johnny Thunder, a.k.a. Thunderbolt, before or after Crisis? It was before. It was before? Okay, so. I can't think of Roy Thomas, like, well, there was the Secret Origin series, so he got to play around with that, but I, I always felt like he never really regained his footing. So he got to throw in Last Days of the JSA just before, mm-hmm. and uh, he got to do his wrap-up of Young All-Stars and All-Star Squadron. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, Roy Thomas essentially was out of a job. He was still back doing Conan and stuff at Marvel mm-hmm. and whatever indies he was doing. Um, but uh, you're right. Uh, Roy Thomas definitely. I, if Marvel, I liked Marv Wolfen's plan. They would have started with zero issues and then rebooted the entire line. Yeah, but buy-in, right? No, he didn't have buy-in from all the creators. No, I mean, you have to think of DC at the time was a bunch of territorial fiefdoms. Yeah, editorial, the Batman office, the Superman office. Yeah. 
and, and Danny O'Neill in the Batman office was not on board with it. Hmm. The Superman office was turned over, right? Well, Danny O'Neill came over from Marvel, so it was kind of a fresh start, even though he didn't re- reboot per se. He did bring in Frank Miller, right? He did, but he'd come over before. He started his work before Crisis. So, oh, did he? Okay, I didn't realize that. Uh, so he, he basically, whatever, uh, like Batman wasn't affected by Crisis. In a sense, like Batman wasn't affected by New 52 initially. Yeah. Right? They, and they neither was Aquaman or Green Lantern. Right. So, um, yeah, in the long run, I do think that DC had better after effects. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, because the three, I think, I, I, have I mentioned this to, to Eric? I think I might have talked about this on the show. It was like the three-pronged approach. Mm-hmm. You had poaching the Marvel talent. You had the British creators, the British uh, waves coming in. And then mm-hmm. you had uh, Mike Gold and the first comics talent sort of on the B and C list characters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and bringing in like Mike Barron and John Ostrander, et cetera, et cetera. Tim Truman, yeah. Tim Truman, yeah. And I think for me being a DC fan and being the right age of growing up with those as my first, you know, things I saw in a spinner rack, but I, I, I think for most people, I don't, I can't think of anybody that I've ever spoken to who feel other than, and I haven't spoken to this person, but maybe like someone like Mark Wade who prefers the Superman before the crisis because that's mm-hmm. their Superman, right? But as mm-hmm. far as as the um, the Elliot S. Magan uh, Superman, I think is yeah. kind of an iconic one, and it's iconic for me just because I do have memories of that. But right, right. For I think for most right. people, there's only one word that comes to mind for me, and that's lame. Like those were not good comics. Right, and I and yeah. I think for DC fans, their connection to the universe is what occurs post crisis. Like we, I, I think people like Wally West as Flash, the 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 nephew that took over the mm-hmm. mantle after crisis. That's Flash for people yeah. who who read DC comics. And I absolutely, I, I don't know if that's you know me being my snobby. Oh yeah, you're just that age. You can't. No, I just think those were a very a good creative period for people taking fresh takes on these characters and really giving them a universe to all be a part of, which I don't think really existed in DC before the way it did with Marvel. And Julius Schwartz did stick the landing on by, by bringing in Alan Moore for his final, uh, you know, whatever happened to the of tomorrow. But on the flip side, he, to to me, the, the, the glee of the final days of Julie Swartz is the fact that it was all almost parody stuff, like just the weirdest parody stuff in terms of ambush bug was run, you know, basically set loose. Like, like Keith Giffen was, was prototyping essentially his hum, his justice league humor, uh, because Julie just let him run wild with ambush bug. And then, mm-hmm. uh, the weird stuff in terms of he'd meet, uh, Asterix and Popeye and and uh, yeah, it was pretty uh, ludicrous by the time Julie was ready to, to retire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and then meanwhile, the- over at Marvel, uh, you know, they follow up uh, Secret Wars with Secret Wars 2. Mm. <laughs> Is that a must read, guys? <laughs> no. <laughs> Kev? Want to chime in about Secret Wars 2 before I... Uh, I have nothing to add. It's garbage. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it was like um, Jim Shooter's... Secret Wars is really Jim Shooter's baby, and he's trying to 
put magic back. He's trying to get that genie back in the bottle, and it's just not. <laughs> it's not working. Yeah, and and there's this weird, you know, kind of I don't know, uh, stranger in a strange land, man to f- that fell to earth. Kind of, he's trying, but it's just horribly executed. This sort of meand again, a, 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 a meandering narrative, and and uh, it it's 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 best when you look at it as high camp and comedy. Mm, I got you. But it wasn't Something intended you can't to say be. for the new universe, by the way. <laughs> you can't even you can't even bring in the, the comedic aspects. At least you have Jerry Curl disco suit beyonder. You know right. what I mean? You you can point at it and, and chuckle. Right. Uh, right. The, other, the only Secret Wars two tie in that I like is the um, is the bit with Doctor Doom and um, there's something someone's replaced him or something like that or <laughs> I can't remember but the real Doctor Doom returns from crisis oh, yeah yeah basically uh, 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 Burn had to uh, figure out a time paradox yes that, that's right he, he sort of created a time paradox in order to because Doom was dead at this point mm-hmm. yes and I think that was a good use of, of the crossover uh, for me it's all about Spider-Man Having mm. to teach the Beyonder how to use the bathroom. Because <laughs> oh. the, the Beyonder had learned to eat and was like enjoying like <laughs> eating and drinking and stuff like that, but then he felt a pressure he felt a pressure in his belly or something like that. I feel like reading I feel like reading this book just because that's there. That's awesome. Ah! Wow. <laughs> oh man. So I, I recently had uh, somebody who runs a website, the Marvel Comics Guide, and he, he started the site based on crossovers, and he, he made a, a good statement that I'm sure you guys have heard before. If you enjoy crossovers, you have Secret Wars to thank, and if you don't, then you have it to blame. Do you guys like the the fact that after this, crossovers became... Um, I don't want to say prevalent thing, but something to look forward to and use as a storytelling element to change the universe as we knew it. Do you guys like that? I know a lot of people today are like, that's what makes me not want to read comics anymore. What do you, what's your take on it? The legacy of Secret We're both Legends fans, right, Kevin? Yeah. We both yeah. like Legends and thought that was sort of a good, because that helped launch the DCU. That was on the heels, like, was Crisis took it down. Uh, Legends launched uh, The Flash and uh, Justice League and Suicide Squad, etc., etc. But then came a millennium. Oh, oh yeah, millennium. And even as a kid, you know, you're just kind of like, oh boy, they really, they really shit the bet on this one. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the problem is, is that they had some great writers at DC. And they decided that they would turn every year, one of the big writers would get, be given the opportunity to write the crossover. And so... Um, Steve Englehart? Uh, I guess Englehart did, did Millennium, and that was a disaster. Oh, While yeah. Ostrander did... Legends. Legends. Legends, which was great. It yeah. was self-contained. It was a tight story. It was the new... 
reintroducing the new gods in a way that they hadn't been, again, especially after Hunger Dogs, right? It felt yep. like Hunger Dogs had taken them off the table and then they were action figures and superpowers. But here's, you know, the, the, the new gods as an actual threat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course you have Burn, which, yeah. you know, on art, yeah, and and he can he can like make any story sing to me. I don't know how he did all the stuff he was doing at that time. Just the amount of pages he was drawing during that era is when incredible. You have a, when when you have an opportunity, interview Ty Templeton. Not my story to tell, but uh, Ty has has some good insight into that. Okay. Okay. Well, and part of it too is Burton learned uh, when he was doing FF and uh, Alpha Flight, and the thing at the same time too. I think and he was writing the thing, but I uh, wasn't drawing it. But um, he learned how to draw in ink. So he bypassed. First off, Burton was a guy who was like, well, "Why are we paying for an inker? I could do the inking <laughs> too. Why do we need to pay a writer? I could write it too." So they, he, was, I, I think he might as well have done the lettering too. So that he takes all the all the job money as opposed to feeding it out to other people. But Dave, I, I remember Dave Gibbons had something to say once Burn uh, started lettering. Yeah, and I think because Burn uh, is an early adapter of a lot of digital technology, including digital fonts, and yeah. I think he used uh, Gibbons' uh, lettering as a basis for his font when he started lettering his own stuff digitally. <laughs> well, one of the things I think he he. Um, he successfully did was as he was writing it, he was composing it on the page. And so he may have done rough outlines, but he inked on the page. So uh, the, the, the books didn't look as sharp. No. But he was able to generate more pages. And so, um, you know, some of, the, some of the figures, some of the faces look weak to me as opposed to earlier. Mm-hmm. When he had an inker, and even later on, when he does get an inker back, when Carl yeah. Kessel starts taking him again, uh, but but he was fast, so he was able to churn out a lot more. And so, when you look at Legends and Superman and and stuff, he was churning out two to three books a month. And subtly, maybe this is why I wasn't always as excited about his um, uh, DC stuff. You know, not even being able to articulate it as a as a kid. There is something about the fact that. Uh, you know, was it Jerry Ordway who was inking him on the final days of Fantastic Four? You had, you know, Terry Austin on the classic X-Men. Like, it, it, you know, as a fan, you go back and you feel like that Marvel stuff where he had an inker just overall looks better. Ordway was was there, uh, but I think Carl Kessel, Carl Kessel was his primary was uh, Fantastic Four inker. Around the time that he did the... Um, so he did that episode where the thing was on the Forest planet, mm-hmm. where he fights uh, Dracula, the Wolfman, and Frankenstein and stuff. Um, and it was jarringly different. Rocky Grimm, uh, Space Ranger. Yeah, and it was, but the art was jarringly different. And it was because he brought in a new anchor who really um, added an element to his work. Mm-hmm. Who's your favorite uh, burning anchor, Kev? I don't know. I mean, Terry Austin comes to mind. Yeah. No, me too. Yeah. Terry Austin, I think, has got to be the, 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 that's the best burn duo. Mm-hmm. 
agree. Which is which is odd because you know uh, in some ways uh, I think uh, you know Burns more organic kind of line. You you think someone with something closer to his style rather than you know Terry's very technical approach to to inking. You know with his with his microns and stuff. I still think the best burn pen and ink with with Austin would be um, those first few issues of. Um, Fantastic Four, like uh, 232 to 236. Oh, yeah, yeah. Although Byrne was on the series before that, but he wasn't writing, right, Kev? Is, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, he was a, he was a penciler. So it, yeah, because I remember there was an early Herbie uh, Fantastic Four comic that I, I, I recognized as art, but then when I went back, I realized he wasn't writing the series back then. Mm-hmm. Who was the writer that he, that he took over from? Oh God! I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull out the book. You guys, yeah, I, I, I want to say Marv Wolfman. I feel like you might be right. Oh wait, because Marv Wolfman was doing the issue 200 around issue 200, where the Son of Doom, that yeah. forgotten storyline. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was my very first uh, Fantastic Four. Like just, I think it was like 199, where the Son of Doom had all the Fantastic Four powers. Yeah, there was uh, Marv Wolfman, Bill Mantlo wrote some of those first drawn issues by Byrne. And ah, then okay, yeah. 233 was Herbie. Roger Stern. Okay, I feel like, yeah, the Herbie issues was probably Bill Mantlo, I would imagine. Yeah, I look at the, like, 217 when they're in space with Herbie. Yeah. Um, that's Bill Mantlo and Marv Wolfman. And Joe Sinnott, of course, was a long-term Fantastic Four inker. He was Kirby's inker uh, towards the end, and he stuck it out through the entire 100s, basically, inking over Perez, over Romino Sr. So he added a consistency to that title. Yeah. So the characters did look similar, even when the different pencilers stepped in. Was Stern actually writing, or was he helping uh, script, burn script? I don't think Stern had anything to do with Fantastic Four. Oh, okay. It was just one issue I think was written by him. It says in the omnibus, 233. Oh, gotcha. That's all. So what's included in that omnibus, by the way? Is it the, all the penciled work as well as uh, the written work? It includes those early issues too. Oh, okay. Yeah, everything the, he did. The Herbie issues. <laughs> this volume goes up to issue 260. It's a as, half, as, half of his run. Kev... Were you excited by Herbie in the comic? Because I was, and I assume you hated Herbie. I'll, I'm just sort of throwing that out there as a guess. No, I didn't mind. Herbie had a oh, really? okay. Because I know people who are older than me hate Herbie, hmm. and because I was the right age for that cartoon. Well, I tell I, you what, I, I hate Herbie. I hate Herbie because of the cartoon. But in oh, the okay. comics, when they introduced Herbie, he was actually a great character. He was Franklin uh, Franklin's nanny, essentially his robot guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I don't know if you've read any of those Chris Eliopoulos comics. Oh, I love them. Yeah, they're with great. Fanta- with uh, Franklin and and her. Son of they're, a genius. Yeah, they're great. Richards. It's it's very Calvin and Hobbes. Like I think uh, Herbie is kind of his Hobbes. Yeah. So let's see. I'm just looking at some of these. So I guess Byrne takes over writing around issue two twenty. Uh, from from uh, from Marv Wolfman. Okay. Yep. 
And so I think he writes that Salem. Oh, Doug Mensch is also in there too. He does a couple issues with Bill Sienkiewicz. Okay. Uh, with the, like the Salem uh, Seven. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, 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 musical chairs, uh, creators on both the Fantastic Four and Avengers during that time. I Because I, that's when I started reading those titles as a little, little kid. Uh, yeah. I don't even know if I, I could read at that point or if I was sort of using the comics to teach myself to read. But going back, you know, the, the real thing that really struck me was oh my God, all my favorite comics, like intuitively, uh, were drawn by Byrne and Perez. Like, yes. I didn't even know the, the most dog-eared ones, you know, the most ones that I ret- re- returned to again and again, intuitively, you know, at the age of however, like three, four, five, uh, was was John Byrne, which which astonishes me. That, yeah, it's funny. I think of uh, Doug Mensch and Bill Sienkiewicz, to me, are the Moon Knight team. And they did such a great job on that run to look at the 220s and see uh, up to like 231. It, um, it was mentioned Sienkiewicz on Fantastic Four. And to me, they're not like, I, I don't think of it as a Sienkiewicz uh, run at all. I'll have to check that out because the idea of, cause, well, was this back when he was a little still uh, channeling Neil Adams? Well, no, I think the problem is that Joe Sinat and Pablo Marcus are his inkers. Oh, okay. And they're trying very hard to maintain that Fantastic Four look. Gotcha. So they trim down that Sienkiewicz, Neil Adams style. Well, this is the pre-Moon uh, Knight Sienkiewicz before he really found his uh, uh, footing. in Because I do remember seeing some, like, I haven't sought it out, but when it's sort of, I've come across it, it's always struck me as, as being very... Uh, yeah, I mean, of the Neil Adams, just like the early burn is of the Neil Adams school. This would have been about 1981, and then uh, that Moon Knight run would have been early 80s, shortly after. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that Moon Knight run, they, they shifted over to um, direct sales pretty quickly. Gentlemen, we have been talking for about uh, two and a half hours, which is expected. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm sure Eric can divide this into... Uh, <laughs> our WandaVision and our Secret Wars talk. Uh, this makes a perfect segue because I think, Eric, uh, we were talking last week uh, about the idea that uh, probably a great topic for Kevin and I would be uh, our favorite John Byrne yes. uh, runs. Yes, that I, I was thinking that before we had intended for this episode, so I want to I wanna put that in the docket of things to talk about because I'd love to hear you guys expound on one of, uh, you know, comic books most legendary beloved and hated creators of all time and and this also uh, segues into something that kevin and i have been kind of talking behind the scenes i've been trying to coax uh, kevin and the timing just hasn't been right but to do a live stream with me where we just uh uh flip through and comment about uh, uh old burn issues i would love to do that so yeah, just throw that out there Kevin. <laughs> he's putting you on the spot <laughs> I'm on the spot now. All right. Well, well. I think the main issue is uh, I always ask you on Sunday night uh, when you have your podcast, and I should just ask you on right. Friday so or Saturday. I, I, I do do a movie review podcast every two weeks called the Extra Features Movie Review Podcast, and so yeah, I have to watch movies, and I'm always crunching on those weekends to <laughs> catch well, up on. But well, I'm happy that you you mentioned it on the show because I I know I know that you podcast with numerous people, but I didn't know you have your own every Sunday so or every two weeks. Well, I'm I'm a regular on it. I just I don't 
I, I don't have any kind of weird claim to it or anything like that. I just feel like it's my friend Simon's movie podcast. I just talk about movies on it. So <laughs> you're becoming podcast celebrity. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I don't know about that. But... <laughs> well, podcast regular, which is good. Right. That means people enjoy talking to you. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys for, for giving me so much of your time. I know time escapes us, but this won't be two episodes. It'll be one. I'm going to enjoy wow. listening to it because you guys are fun. I, listen, I have a good time talking to you guys, and it's the type of conversations that I enjoy listening to myself. So I, I'm always happy to be a part of them now and have them recorded for posterity, if you will. So thank you, guys. It's always a good time to talk to you. Any last things you want to plug or, or mention before we sign off for good tonight? Uh, for our backers, Cauldron is headed uh, to the printer soon. Uh, we've run into some uh, uh, issues, but uh, yeah, Bally Skillen is well on its way, and they'll, they'll, those those will be in backers' hands. So, so, and I would say, if you get an opportunity to get vaccinated, get vaccinated because I want to have conventions again. So, yeah. so uh, that's not going to happen until more people get vaccinated and. Uh, and borders open up and things start happening again because uh, uh, I'd like to get paid again. <laughs> and all of us can can go down to uh, hang out at Star Wars Land uh, together. That's and, right. Uh, That's the right. George, the the final George Perez, uh, uh, the last hurrah. Let's do it. That's right. Bucket list right there. All right, guys. Thank you again, and thank you everybody for listening. Uh, rate and review the show. Share it with anybody who you think would enjoy it, and we will be back soon. Thank you, guys. Have a good night. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys.